0: What we're going to consider this morning is the subject of heaven. And let me preface that by saying that the older I get, the more interested I become in the subject. It's interesting that, as Cindy and I were talking the other day, uh, looking through modern music uh, or contemporary music, there's not a lot there that speaks specifically about, about heaven about golden streets and about uh, the uh, the heavenly city. I think that, in part, uh, money, much of the modern or contemporary music has been written by baby boomers or was part of that generation. And uh, they were younger when much of that was written. But I've got a feeling that in the next 10 years, there's going to be an outpouring of music, contemporary music, that uh, will speak more clearly about heaven as we age together. I'd like to mention a couple things about heaven that I think is important for us to understand. We're going to look at a very specific passage this morning of Scripture that talks about heaven in Revelation chapter 21, and if you'd like to turn there, you may just to prepare yourself, but before we move to that passage, I'd like to mention that this passage is going to talk about heaven on earth. Heaven will be within the reach of everyone one day who lives on earth. Now when I think of heaven on earth, I think of going to a bakery and Smelling the smells and then tasting that great taste. I think of a motorcycle trip around the world with perfect weather. I think about sitting around with friends and having a good meal and sharing experiences. I think about listening to Handel's Messiah or gazing at the world from the point or from the top of a mountain, a great mountain. But this is not exactly what God had in mind when he speaks to us about heaven on earth. Part of our need to understand what God means by heaven, and particularly heaven on earth, can be clarified if we keep in mind that in Scripture there are three heavens. There's the first heaven is our atmosphere that's right above us, that includes the the place where the planes fly and the birds fly. Then there's the second heavens, which is what we would call our universe, space, with all its stars and planets. And then the third heaven that's spoken of is the home of God. And it's called in several places the paradise of God, in several places in Scripture. The most famous one that we probably would recall quickly is when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, "'Today you shall be with me in paradise.'" Paul spoke of being caught up to the third heaven, the paradise of God. John records the words of Christ to his churches when he said this in the book of Revelation, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, what is this third heaven, this this place that is called the paradise of God, which God has created. Many of us have been trained to think of it as a place where we have clouds and we sit around with golden harps and we strum those harps for all eternity. That could not be farther from the truth taught in Scripture. Some people think of it as a surreal place where people exist in sort of a semi-conscious state of dreamy-eyed spirits. That couldn't be farther from what the Scripture teaches. Most of us would like to think that it's a place where everyone goes after they die to live out their fantasies and their dreams. If your dream was to play Pebble Beach, it'll be there in heaven in the minds of most people. The reality is, is that most people don't have any idea what, it's, what heaven is like. Our word, paradise, is really a transliteration of a New Testament Greek word, paradisos. The word disos has the word of a wall, or means wall, and para is the idea of a, of a round or encircling. It's, it's an encircling wall or enclosure. Eventually it was used of a royal garden or a park, a place of exquisite beauty. Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament translated the Garden of Eden, the paradise or paradisus of God or of Eden. Indeed, Eden was the first paradise God created for himself and for man upon this earth. But the Garden of Eden or the paradise of Eden does not compare to the paradise of God, which shall one day and for all eternity come down upon this earth. It is this paradise that I want us to consider this morning. And if you have your Bible, again, I turn to Revelation chapter 21. and We'll be going through chapter 22. Now, just to bring us up to speed at chapter 21, I'd like just to mention that as you study the book of Revelation, you'll find that John has a number of visions. The one who wrote this book, John the Apostle, was given by the Spirit a number of opportunities to see a number of things. For instance, in the first few chapters, he saw seven churches, which I believe prefigure 2,000 years of church history. After that, he saw seven years of horrendous judgments in which God pours out His wrath upon this rebellious planet, and the scales of justice are finally balanced. Following that, what was read this morning by Paul Carden, John saw 1,000 years of prosperity and perfect peace between man and nations under the Messianic government of Messiah, Jesus Christ. At the end, John saw an innumerable host of people trying one last time to overthrow Christ's kingdom only to be devoured by fire and killed. Then he saw all the wicked and all the unbelieving dead from all ages standing before God in judgment to be cast into an eternal hell. Now, it would have been sad if that was the last vision that John had, full of uncertainty. If John were to see nothing else. But God enabled John to see one more thing. The final chapter of history. A chapter that will never end. Let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now, we read, if we were to go back into verse 11 of chapter 20, we'd read that before this great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. The word flee or fled away or the word pass away has the idea not of something being eliminated altogether, but fleeing or escaping from the presence of one who is absolutely pure and who is absolutely judge, whose judgment is absolutely just. And so the heaven and the earth, which had been the site of man and man's ambition and pride and so much sin and rebellion and hatred and violence, flees away from the presence of God. Now I don't see this as a fleeing away to another place, but a fleeing away in the sense that it goes to another state of existence. This place that had been the site of so much hatred, violence, and unrighteousness passes into another state. Peter, I think, says it best when he says this. In Second Peter we read, The heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, now, in our knowledge today we might think of this as atomic disintegration, resulting in a chaotic energy mass. That was the state in which the old heavens and the earth fled away to. And then God takes this, this resulting chaotic energy mass and he refashions it into a new heavens and a new Earth, much as he did when he started back in Genesis one. Refashion an earth that was under judgment. The word new, where it says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21, verse 1, does not mean new in the sense that it had never existed before. It simply means new in the sense of being fresh or new in kind. In this case, God makes afresh what existed before. Only it's completely transformed so that it is now new in character, new in structure, There's one unique characteristic about this new heavens and new earth. And it says a lot. It won't be fun for those of you that love the ocean. But it says this, and also there was no more sea. Why is that such an important statement in Scripture? Do you recall back in Genesis 1-2? The earth, we're told, was void and without form. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters that covered the whole earth. Prepared to begin the process of creating this earth that we now know of. That we now experience. Those waters were the waters of judgment. Those That language in Genesis 1-2 was the language of judgment. That I believe resulted from the angelic rebellion that occurred prior to Genesis 1-1. Go on to Genesis chapter 6, and what do you have? That the wickedness of man is so bad that God now judges the earth. And how does He judge the earth? He covers the earth with water, with the seas. You see, the sea has always been a place of judgment. And this brief observation by John, when he looked at the earth, that was the first thing he noticed about this new earth is that there was no more sea. And it suggested a great deal about the character of this new earth. In Scripture, the sea is not perceived as, in a place, as a place of eternal peace and rest like we think of. People talk about, I just love the sea. It's so peaceful. Hogwash. We're waiting to find out whether we're going to get hit with a hurricane or not. And the weather service really didn't know for sure even as late as last night. They still don't really know. I mean, that thing could turn around and head this way. You see, the sea is a place of constant motion and change, a place of uncertainty, a place of unpredictability, a place to fear. It's fearful. When you get out on the ocean, there's something about it. You wonder if your engine dies, will I end up in China? The new earth has no sea. Because it is not a place of chaos, it's not a place of constant motion and change. Upon the new earth, there will be no need to check with the weather service. There will be no need to fear a volcanic eruption, or an avalanche, or a hurricane, or a typhoon. The new earth will be at peace, and in harmony with God's eternal purpose. Which it's not today. When then we read that as John was gazing upon this newly refashioned earth, new earth, he saw something else. Verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. There was an old Jerusalem, which was prominent even during the Millennial Kingdom. But now he sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The central object in John's lens now had focused down a little bit more from the heavens and the new heavens and the new earth and the fact there was no sea and now he's looking at a specific thing that is happening upon this earth. The central object in his John's lens was this new city, the holy city, Jerusalem. A brilliant city clothed in all the glory of God. It was, as we shall see in a moment, in this, later in this chapter, a place that was described as that majestic paradise of God that Jesus spoke of. A place in which all of God's people, today and in days past, will one day reside in this new city. We call it heaven today. I'm going to heaven. Well, that's heaven. Living in that place will be heaven. And we will all live there in resurrection bodies. All of God's people. Old Testament and New Testament. As John was gazing at this brilliant, breathtaking city, he heard a voice say something very significant about it. Listen to this, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Think about this, just a moment. We're already there living in that city. We've all been raised and given new bodies. We're the resurrected saints, if you will. We've already been there with God. But now the city is coming down to earth. And because of this verse and many others that we're going to look at, This verse has led to a lot of misinterpretations, if you will. Briefly, because of the very human earth-like situations at the end of the chapter, many commentaries, many commentators have placed much of this chapter chronologically back into Revelation 20 in the Millennial Kingdom because they saw there that this city seems to be like a satellite city that they talk about that will be over the millennial kingdom. But if you look at this chapter clearly, you can't really come away with that conclusion. This, What we're reading about in this chapter, chapter 21 and chapter 22, can only be true of Eternity. Furthermore, you have to add the fact that the old earth has now passed away. The millennial kingdom will take place for a thousand years on this earth that we're on now. But now we're talking about in Revelation 21 a new earth that will be totally different from this earth. No sea. This is an impossible interpretation. To take what we're about to read and try to put it back into chapter 20. Chronologically, it's after chapter 20. But then there is a big problem. How do you explain the nations who live on this earth, the kings of these nations who walk into the city? How do you explain the the leaves from the tree of life, which are for the healing of the nations? How do you explain all this humanness, the fact that God is now dwelling with men? I have an interpretation, and I can't point to a commentary that would take this interpretation. I know of a few people that I'm close to that would hold this. But it is an interpretation that I think is accurate and reflects the text of Scripture. The great voice out of heaven cries out to John because what he sees as he watches the holy city descend on earth is more than just a beautiful sight. It's above all else, God's eternal home and what's most interesting is that this eternal home this eternal tabernacle if you will the word tabernacle would have been a a term that would have been very relevant to a jew which john was because the tabernacle in the old testament was the place where god first resided among his people but keep in mind that, that he only resided in that the Shekinah glory of God, the, the, blight, the bright effulgence of God's character represented in this bright light, was housed in a place called the Holy of Holies, in a tent within a tent. It was veiled from the people so they could not see that light. It was a tent made with hands. But now we're looking at a new tabernacle, not made with hands. And it is dwelling among men. The tabernacle of God, we read, is with men. Now, he's not talking, again, about the saints who've been raised and brought into this eternal presence long before this point. You and I, once we die, we look for the resurrection. And the first resurrection is back in Revelation 20. A resurrection that will begin seven years prior to the beginning of Revelation 20. But it's all part of that first resurrection into the glory of God. But that first resurrection is ended by the beginning of of the millennial kingdom. We're all now with the Lord. We're all saints. We've all been changed. We have transformed bodies fit for eternity. And we're told that we'll always be with the Lord. And we'll dwell constantly in His presence from that point on. So what's so astonishing here is not that he is tabernacling with his people, you and I, in our resurrected bodies. It's that he's tabernacling with men. And the word for men here in Revelation 3, where he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The word for man there is the word anthropos. That's the word from which we get our word, anthropology. The study of man on this earth. Our term human or human being would be the closest to the idea of the word anthropos in Greek. They're very similar. I searched a number of scriptures where the word is used and never once did I find that it referred to God's people in heaven. Saints are taken from among men. But as Jesus said, when they are raised, they become like the angels in terms of their being and their abilities, their mobility then who are these men, these human beings who live on earth after the millennium? Did you ever ask yourself the question as you read about the millennial kingdom? We read at the end of the thousand years that these people multiplying like the sand of the seashore rise up and confront Jesus Christ and try to tear down his kingdom and he calls down fire from heaven and they're all destroyed and killed. Have you ever thought about what happens to the people who believed in him, who did not rebel, who stood with him? It's it's not stated as to what happened to them. Now, most of your commentaries will say, well, those people were translated or raised and brought into the presence of God, like we are, when we will be brought into his presence one day. Scripture doesn't say that. I believe the people that will be populating this eternal earth, if you will, this newly refashioned earth, will be people who have come out of the the millennial kingdom, the perhaps billions of people who lived upon the earth during the millennial kingdom and who honored the Messiah, who supported the Messiah, who followed the Messiah. They believed in Jesus Christ. They were prepared or redeemed by His blood. And because of their inner transformation, they did not rebel at the end with the others. They did not revolt. And they were not killed by His fiery judgment. I believe that God took them and set them aside in some way. I suggest that's what happened to them. God simply set them aside in some way while He created The new heavens and the new earth. He judged the dead at the end of Revelation 20. He judged the people that had been killed, that had died. But the people that had stood with his son and who did not rebel, nothing is said. And so, therefore, I take it that nothing happened. They did not, they were not raised, or it would have been said that they were raised. In some way, I believe that God set them aside simply until He created the new earth. And then He placed them upon this new earth, much as He placed Adam in the paradise of Eden after forming it. These men would be the first men of earth to know God's glorious unveiled presence since Adam walked with God in the Garden of Eden however because they were human they knew human limitations but God's going to do something for them verse 4 and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes we're talking about human beings living on the new earth during this time, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes there shall be no more death the aging process will be eliminated nor sorrow nor crying and there shall be no more pain no more disease no more injuries that could take their life for the former things have passed away in other words God is saying here is that these people living in human bodies in the millennial kingdom they didn't die but their bodies were aging the process was slowed down And there are scriptures that support that. But they aged. They knew pain and there was disease. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as he did on this earth, would heal them of their diseases. When their loved ones revolted against the Lord Jesus Christ, they died. However, now these people, standing on the threshold of eternity, as men, as human beings, as anthropos, God says, I will wipe away your tears, their tears. And there shall be no more pain, no more death, no more crying. Now, how this is going to happen, I'm going to share in just a moment. They're going to be physically, and emotionally, and spiritually rejuvenated. As human beings, they will become like Adam before the fall. Before the fall. Now this happens, how this happens, we're going to see in just a moment. But then in verse 5, God sums up all John had seen up to that point before his eyes. And We read this. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, fresh, a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a new government, a glorious new world in which men relate to each other and to God in a glorious new way. It's all new. It sounds really too good to be true. But it is. And so we read in the last part of verse 5, And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You can count on them. You can depend on it. If we believe the Bible at all, then we should believe this. This is not pie-in-the-sky theology. This is not something that, that we should sit back and say, Oh, isn't these, aren't these nice thoughts? If you take the Bible seriously, this is what it says. And we can count on it. We can bank on it. It's true. Now, verses 6, 7, and 8, I'm saving till next week because they're three of my favorite passages in Scripture. We're going to look at those. But at this point, I want to ask this question. So what is this, this place really like? This new earth with the new Jerusalem? What will it really be like? And so that takes us to verse nine. And then we read this. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now who is the lamb's wife, the bride? The church. The church. Where would you find the bride, the Lamb's wife? Where would she live? Among other resurrected people, yes. But she lives specifically in a place. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. There's the bride, the Lamb's wife. Having the glory of God, verse 11, and her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city is ablaze with light, like the light that passes through a crystal clear jasper stone. It bespeaks of the glory of God and the glorious bride who resides within the city. Now, she's not the only resurrected saint to live in that city. But she is the most prominent person, and I'm using that in a generic sense, who lives in that city. And that is us, the bride of Christ, the church, the wife of the Lamb, who has taken away her sins and washed her and prepared her for this very moment. When Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. What place was he talking about? This place. This is the city. This is the place where the bride will live. This is the place he spoke of. What was coming down out of heaven was the home of the bride of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was fitting that she live in a place of exquisite beauty that he had prepared for her. The description of this home continues. In verses 12 to 14, and we talk here about walls and gates and foundations. We read, And she had a great... A high wall with 12 gates. Now, a great and high wall, from the standpoint of a human being we're talking about here, the wall, remember, is is important because it, it uh, encircles and encloses, if you will, the paradise of God. The wall set this place off like it would set off a royal garden or a paradise of a royal garden. and it distinguished this place from everything else on earth. He continues on. And he says, It had twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and the names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Interesting. Interesting. What is a gate referred to here? And if you have a name on a gate, what might that suggest? A gate is an entrance, correct? And so if you have a name on the gate, it indicates that you have a right to enter that gate. And so what he's saying is here, is that these who have their names on this gate, being the children of Israel, will have the right and the privilege to enter here and live here. But to have your name on a foundation suggests possession and ownership of this place. As the first of the Lamb's disciples, the twelve disciples, they along with all who would come after them would possess what is within these walls. They would administrate this heavenly household, if you will, and its affairs, and that's brought out in verse, much like First Timothy five fourteen. What is within these walls that makes this such a an envi- enviable possession for these whose names are written on the foundation stones? Why is this such a prize to possess and to own? Verse fifteen. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square. And its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, which is about 1,500 miles. Its length, its breadth, and its height are equal. Now, how do you understand that? There's two ways to understand that mathematically. You could have a cube... Or more precisely, I think, and more fitting, would be a pyramid. And you have a square, and the pyramid comes up to a point where God resides. And we'll see in just a moment what comes forth from God, the river of life. But closest to God would be the bride, the bride of God. And then there would be places throughout the pyramid for all the resurrected saints who were part of God's family prior to the church being called, which consisted of both Jews and Gentiles, by the way. In verse 17 we read, Then he measured its wall 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. That's only 200 feet high. What's that to 1,500 miles? It's not much. But keep in mind, the wall was there to set it off from the rest of the earth. And who lived on the earth? Men. And if you walked up to a 200-foot wall, it would be impressive as a man. But the city itself is 1,500 miles high. That's like taking half of the United States, and every mile you would double that landmass. you could say to say how much space we need or what, how much space will be existing. I have no idea. But it's a huge place because it's as high as it is square. We think of 1,500 miles square and we think of half of our country. But let's multiply that out however many times you want. If you want to take miles as a definition, 1,500 more times. And that gives everybody a mile high as well as a 1,500 miles deep or wide. That's a huge place. We've got the dimensions. What about the materials of the city? What's it made of? What's it like? Is it, is it a dreamy place? Does it have substance to it? Or is it just sort of a dream that John saw? We continue on. In verse 18, we read, And the construction of its wall was of jasper. And the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardons. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jason. And the twelfth, amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. It says that twice. It must have been an awesome thing for John to see. But it is a substance place. And the materials that make this place what it is are gorgeous, brilliant colors. And yet those colors and that substance was in some way transparent. Gold in such a way that you can see through the gold. And the walls of the city were designed to transmit this unapproachable light of God's glory and thus create a, a brilliant spectrum of breathtaking color and beauty that would be seen all over the city but all over the, the worth itself and throughout, if you will, the heavens. As John begins to look into the effulgence of this radiant glory, this radiant city that was beaming this light, where's the light coming from? And so he sees something else in verses 22 to 27 that distinguish the city. He says, I saw no temple in this city. You remember the temple was there, and within the temple there was a place where you had the Holy of Holies where the the bright light would be confined and enclosed in this, this dark place. But the light would not be allowed to penetrate beyond, except in perhaps a veiled form, beyond the Holy of Holies. He says there's no temple now. The light's able to be open and available to all to see. The bright effulgence of God's glorious person, the Shekinah glory, in its fullest sense, will be there for everyone to see. There'll be no more altar for bloody sacrifices which a high priest could be the only one that would enter into the God's presence. Everyone will be living in God's presence. Even those who are living on earth will see the presence of God amongst them because the city will be clear and transparent, transmitting that light instead of veiling it. God's presence is clearly visible to all. Notice verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine. We're talking about a light much brighter than that. For the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring the glory and honor of the nations to Him. Its gates shall not be shut. This is an open place at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. What in the world is he talking about here, this glory and the honor of the nations? Certainly they aren't going to be bringing their gold and silver into the Lord, into a place that's already awesome, beyond anything that earth could provide, even a new earth. The light which streams into this crystal clear prisms shines out over the whole earth. Nothing is going to be brought into there that's going to make it shine brighter or be more glorious. Then what is the glory and the honor of the nations? It suggests to me that the kings of the nations, the nations there meaning people groups, ethnos, will be bringing those people into the gates, in by the gates of that city, into the very presence of God to praise Him and worship Him. There's no better example than David who, in being the king of Israel, was also the chief worship leader in Israel. They will have a worship team, if you will. And they'll be leading the nations in praise to God in this glorious place. Awesome. Awesome. Verse 27 wants to make sure that we understand one thing, though. There shall by no means be anything that enters into it that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. On earth, in the city, there will be no one there whose life has not been transformed by the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb's book of life. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. He came that we might have life. But he also wanted us to have a If you would, a superlative experience of life. How could we have that as human beings? We can have it today in terms of our relationship with Him, and one day we, of course, will be raised and in His presence. But what about the people living on earth at that time? How will they be able to have a superlative experience of life? Verse 1 of chapter 22. And He showed me a river of water of life, Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb, which I take would be in the top of the pyramid. In my mind, I'm picturing a pyramid. And this, we're not talking here about gravity and about the same forces. This is a different place than what we know of today. And so this river supposedly comes down from God from the top of the the pyramid. And we read that it is called a river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. What was it? What was the point of this river of life? Why why was God sending it forth? What was it there for? Verse 22, verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each fruit or each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now the river of life coming down from the throne of God Nourishes the tree of life, which may be many trees lining the street of the city, but all tied together with one root system on both sides of the river. And from this tree come 12 kinds of fruits, one for each month. Each fruit in some way provides the, the eater with a superlative experience or an abundant experience of life and fellowship with God, as we saw last week. Now These people already have eternal life. They've already had their names written in the Lamb's book of life, but they wouldn't be there. So it's not to come and get eternal life. It's to have an, a superlative or an abundant experience of life itself. to eat and to enjoy a superlative experience of life and fellowship with God. But the leaves were for the healing of the peoples, of the various people groups. What's he talking about here? You see, for man, our human beings living on earth at that time, eating these leaves provides a total healing of the human body from the effects of the fall. By eating it, men's bodies will be rejuvenated, or they will be forever young, if you will, like the body of Adam. The effects of sin upon the soul and the spirit have already been removed and dealt with by faith in Christ and by the blood of Christ. But now, the body itself, these bodies have not been raised and trans. trans into a new state like our bodies will have been. But these are human bodies. And they themselves will be made completely whole how they will be able to eat of the leaves of this tree. And so there will be no more aging process for them. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more disease. This leaves, these leaves of this tree of life will deal with them. They're going to be taking some vitamins, if you will, some herbs. Then as if to emphasize that the total effects of sin have been removed. I mean, this is the final effect that the human body itself afflicted with sin. I mean, people say, why me? Why do I have cancer? Why do I have the things that are wrong with me? Friends, the Bible teaches clearly the answer to that is that there is sin. Not that you have personally sinned so much is that you're part of a human race in which we're all dying. And all of our diseases and all of our pain and suffering is a result of sin. That's part of the flesh experience. But one day, this human, these human beings will live with bodies like our bodies, except those bodies will be able to eat of the leaves of this tree and therefore will be healed of all the things that plague us and make us live, if you will, under the power of the flesh. They will not be dying anymore. They will not be growing old. They will not be getting sick. And they will not be injured to the point of death. They will be healed. And to emphasize that this is the final thing that God has done to remove the last traces, vestiges of sin. He says, and there shall be no more curse. It takes you back to Genesis chapter 3 that we've been looking at. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. There won't be any curse there because the throne of God will be there and there can be no sin in the presence of God in any shape or form. We read that His servants shall serve Him. Who are these servants? Revelation 1.1 begins, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants. And unto his servant, John. The servant here describes those who belong to Jesus Christ and to his church and who have proven themselves worthy to serve and to shoulder responsibility in this eternal kingdom of God. They will enjoy a special intimacy with Jesus Christ and they will bear his authority throughout the eternal realm. Verse 4. They shall see His face. They'll be intimate with Him, face to face. And His name shall be on their foreheads. They will represent Him. He will. They will have His identity. They will have His authority. And there shall be no night there in that city. They need no lamp nor light of the sun to go about their work. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign, reign, reign forever and ever. To serve the Lord Jesus Christ in this situation is to reign for him, to represent him as a ruler. This undoubtedly would be the greatest privilege in all eternity. To reign with Christ. You recall first second Timothy chapter two, eleven through thirteen. If we endure with him, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us the privilege of reigning. This is for the people who put their life on the line, who said yes to Jesus Christ and been obedient followers. They will reign with him. Let's put this in perspective. God promised Adam that even though he would die and return to the dust of the earth, that the human race would continue. Adam believed that promise was, And he showed that he believed it when he called his wife's name Eve, meaning life or life-giver. And God, in response to Adam, as a sign to Adam and his descendants that human beings would once again walk with God and enjoy that superlative experience of life and fellowship with God that Adam and Eve had enjoyed, God left the tree of life standing in the Garden of Eden as a sign of hope, even though they could not personally eat of that tree. Now, at the end of the Bible, we see Adam's hope realized. The human race will continue on the earth forever throughout eternity. And will once again eat of the tree of life. The Bible says Abraham left his home as God told him to do and accepted the hardships of living as a vagabond because, as we are told, he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now at the end of the Bible where we see that Abraham was no fool. The writer of the book of Hebrews encouraged Christian readers who were prone to give up and quit for God to push on for Christ because they had by faith come unto Mount Zion unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Into an innumerable company of angels and festal gathering, the church of the firstborn, into the spirits of just men made perfect. That takes us to two things that we need to think about at this point, about this passage. If you're here today and you're a Christian, how can you fully experience all that God would want you to experience in this city? in this time for all eternity by being obedient. By being faithful in whatever He's gifted you and called you and enabled you to do for Him. God isn't comparing you to anyone else. He's simply looking at you and saying, I've given you this opportunity. I've given you these talents, these gifts. Are you going to invest that for me? Are you going to put time and effort into living for me? If you will, then you will fully, fully experience all that I have for you in the world to come. The second group of people I'd like to share something with this morning, and for those of you that may be here, but you know in your heart you're not a Christian. and you're hearing something that, you know, you're wondering, you're probably tuning in and out on me here and there, but you've got enough of this to figure out that, man, this is a cool place. If it really is true... And friends, I tell you, I would rather bank on this book than anything in this world. It's the only thing that I know of that won't change. The Bible says, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. This won't change. And if that's true, and you're here today, and you're not a Christian, and you want to one day be able to enter this city, you can do it. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ. How do you do that? I don't know of a better example than that thief on the cross. He had no opportunity to come down from that cross and live an obedient life. He was dying. But he had enough insight into the person that was next to him, who was obviously dying for not his own sins, but at the hands of a ruthless empire and at the cries of a people who were heartless. He had enough insight into that person to say, Jesus, would you remember me today when you come into your kingdom? He asked him, would you remember me? Jesus said to him, today I tell you, you shall be with me in paradise. That thief will one day be in this kingdom, in this city. He will be living there. I don't believe that he'll have responsibility or opportunity to reign with Christ. But he will be living there because he put his trust in Jesus Christ. And friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to ask. To ask the Lord Jesus Christ. To say enable you one day to enter his kingdom to take away what it is in your life that's so offensive to God which the Bible calls sin and to give you the kind of life, new life, eternal life that is pleasing to God and that will enable you one day to enter into his presence, to see that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life so that you can have the privilege of entering the city don't wait You don't know that you won't drive out of this parking lot today and have an accident as we saw a couple weeks ago. No matter if you're 20, 30, or 40 years old, or, or 80, your life could be over instantly. And you would lose that opportunity. To have said yes to Jesus Christ. Don't let it pass. Trust Him. Our gracious God and Father, take Your Word and affect us with it. Change our heart and our life and our thinking. Help us to be realistic as Christians. To see the future through the eyes of the Word of God. And to have an eternal perspective that influences the way we live. And that will influence the decisions we make even at this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.